Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And today we're talking about If on a Winter's Night for Travelers, published in December of 2020, developed by Laura Hunt and Thomas Mooring, who together make up Dead Idol Games. Uh, we'll be talking spoilers, so just a heads up and a content warning. There are some uh, thematic elements of racism, homophobia, mental illness, murder, and suicide in this game. So just a heads up. There are very dark themes in this game, so do be ready for those. Um, it is a short game, too, though. I think this whole game took me about two and a half hours. Yeah, and it's also free. So, you know, if you're thinking about playing this game at all, um, you know, do yourself a favor and play it before you listen to this podcast. <laughs> it is totally worth it, and it won't take that long. Absolutely. So I think um, I saw this game on the interwebs, maybe on some Twitter or the itch.io uh, Twitter feed. I saw the screenshots. They looked very nice. Gorgeous pixel art in this game, for sure. Took a look at it and also heard it was short, and I'm like, hey, sign me up for that. Went through it, liked the game a lot, said that Brian should play it too, and look where we are today. Yeah, yeah, here we are. Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I I would never have uh, heard about this if it weren't for you, so thanks, Josh. I am, I'm really glad I played this. It's a, it's a really cool game. Personally, I think there's, there's a lot more value here than free. Um, but hey, mm. you know, um, it's nice that this developer, you know, Laura and Thomas are uh, putting this out in the world and, uh, you know, letting letting everyone enjoy this uh, uh, for the low, low price of, of nothing. Yeah, it's kind of surprising with... The, I mean, this game's pixel art seems to have some really good production values here. Um, they must just really love doing pixel art and intricate backgrounds <laughs> because that's kind of what they got. Yeah, so uh, I guess Thomas Mooring is the, the one behind the art, as I understand it. Um, obviously, an extremely talented concept artist in pixel uh, graphic artist as well. Laura doing the coding, writing, and audio. Uh, obviously, uh, all excellent in this game as well. You know, the the writing and sound decisions in this game are something I'm sure we'll talk about more at length. But um, this is a, a power duo if I've ever seen it. Like there is, they're punching way above their weight class of two people uh, with this uh, release, and I I just really enjoyed it. This is you know affecting. It's dark. It's, uh, you know, for being two people, extremely high production value. And um, I had, a, I had a, you know, as good of a time as you can have with such a dark source material. <laughs> I think one of the things that stood out to me about this game was how much personality it had. And I think that's something you can get with two people that you can't get with 40 people necessarily. Like, this game had ideas about things and they were very strongly and clearly expressed, I think. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely clear that they um, had something, or Laura, I guess, is the writer, had something she wanted to say uh, about each of these stories. And I did find an interview that said that uh, she drew influences from a lot of different areas, uh, such as, uh, you know, Inland Empire, the talented Mr. Ripley, and Italo Calvino, who is uh, the novelist responsible for the game's namesake. But she also included uh, real-life events, such as, uh, you know, unsolved mysteries of her own life and her own experiences with substances and things of that nature. Hmm. Oh, I could see that uh, if some of this came from a personal place, then that explains some of the arc of the story, perhaps. 
Absolutely. So I will definitely link the interview that I'm referencing from a game or a site called uh, Indie Game Picks. It's a WordPress blog and uh, has a, a really nice little interview with the two of them. So I'll make sure to include that for uh, folks reference. And yeah, I mentioned that um, Italo Calvino, who uh, gave us the uh, the illusion of the title. Maybe before we go into that, just uh, maybe we should talk about what this game actually is. It is a uh, pixelated point-and-click uh, adventure uh, that explores four different stories uh, of characters attending a masked ball that's taking place on a train in the 1920s, or at least that's what you uh, initially believe. Yeah, and the characters all on this train, they have no idea w- how they got there, and it goes into the stories of each of them to kind of explain what they're doing there on the train. As we'll talk about, they each have a very... Uh, widely varied and interesting backstories and sort of tragic backstories as as it turns out um, leading to some of the dark themes that we mentioned up top but uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, start at the start as they say uh, the title of this game uh, which immediately struck me as I've heard this somewhere before haven't I and it turns out yes I have Uh, it is Hmm. a allusion to a Italian novel called if on a winter's night a traveler now, I haven't read this book, and I believe you haven't read this book either, is that right? Oh no, I definitely have not. So we'll do our best to explain this book. <laughs> but neither of us have read. <laughs> uh, so I, after going over the Wikipedia article, what I got out of it is that it's this postmodern novel that kind of has um, a framing story that's written in the second person about you the reader and then the other half of the book is scattered stories of uh that are unrelated to each other in genre or tone or plot yeah the interesting thing about it is uh, with that chapter to chapter dichotomy you know one then the explainer is the second half is always about something different than the previous one so you're forming this sort of unreliable narrator as self as i understand it i don't know it's it's an interesting idea for a book that also immediately confused the shit out of me (laughs) <laughs> I got you. You know, I didn't realize this was a novel. I, I hadn't heard of the title until I was doing research for this game and quickly found that out. But um, I don't know. Do you think that knowing what we do about this title, do you feel like this book, is, or, I'm sorry, this, um, do you feel like this book is really influencing the video game? I don't think it's influencing the amount of enjoyment I have of the video game. I think it is bestowing upon it a level of prestige by referencing a postmodernist novel uh, that clearly Mm -hmm. has a very high concept. So, you know, take that for what you will. Uh, Maybe it's just like bestowing pretension, but, you know, that's not a big deal to me. I'm I'm not going to discount something for making an illusion. Well, particularly when we haven't read the book in question, (laughs) and this could be deeply connected. But at least from my 10,000-foot view of the the book, I do see there's kind of like the framing story and then Mm -hmm. the unrelated characters uh, that kind of takes place over here. So I could see that much of a connection, at least. The interesting thing to me is that there is... um, in each of the characters' stories, a a story that they're telling in writing, and then the action that's happening on the page that do tend to diverge a little bit. Uh, this is, you know, most uh, apparent in the second story. 
but given that neither of us have read this novel, uh, it's it, it's interesting that this is something they chose to, to feature in, in the title of the game. I don't know that this is like a super popular book. Maybe it is in Europe and we're just like two Americans talking out of their ass. And proud of it. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, you know, maybe this, this is going to you know prompt me to someday put this on my my goodreads to read list and, and maybe i'll revisit that someday and, and read this book but uh you know once i have more brain space for it well i'll tell you something you don't need a whole lot of brain space to appreciate is the pixel art in this game oh oh yeah gorgeous it it really is um thomas mooring has put on a clinic for how to design detailed uh well palleted and interestingly staged pixel art for the exact right thing for the scene at hand. It is just amazing. I think so many pixel art games that you play these days are tile-based. You know, different platforms, Metroidvanias, what have you. Uh, And that definitely leads to certain... You see different things when you have tile-based games. Like you see repetitions, certain formations that... Uh, uh, you see over and over again. Whereas all this pixel art was kind of like boutique hand-drawn stuff there's only one instance of this room or that room and so it's packed to the gills with details that i typically don't associate with a pixel art style maybe because of that tile based game bias yeah you're, you're absolutely right every every um screen is a scene uh you know it, it goes back to that uh, adage about filmmaking where every uh every frame should be a a painting or every frame should be a portrait or something like that. But, um, you know, every screen in this game is actually a masterpiece. It's, uh, it's amazing. And, um, I don't know, I just wrote down some of my like favorite scenes and favorite, most evocative pixel art, um, that I wanted to just call out and see if you had similar ones that you really enjoyed. But to me, I think the top one was the conservatory, uh, of the winter moors, uh, and, uh, just a, a beautiful like room full of flowers and a fountain um and the reveal that happens in that room is probably one of the most startling things in the game and maybe we'll talk about that later but i uh really just you know thought that whole chapter was gorgeous but and depressing but um that scene in, or that screen in particular was just a wow for me yeah that scene was tops for me uh the library of the underworld that you go through as the doctor was fantastic. But even from the get go, that uh, fancy hotel that you find yourself in amazing. Yeah. And the detail that goes into everything too. Like there's always a turn in each of these stories where things go, you know, where things are recontextualized. Uh, Clint yell at me now. Um, (laughs) The ghost of Clint haunts you. (laughs) Yeah, where things are recontextualized and um, you see the scene that you had seen before in a new light. And uh, it is very striking. And it just shows the range of this this artist, Thomas Mooring, who is, um, you know, able to just put the absolute right palette for the tone at hand into place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just great use of color in this game, too. Uh, most dramatically, during that um, the second chapter, the slow vanishing of Lady Winterborn.
Lady Winterborn is on some fairly heavy substances um, to help her through her grief. Um, but the uh, when you are in the present day kind of stuff, then it's all dark and drab and dusty. But when you find your drugs and you take them, uh, she gets transported kind of back in time. But then the entire manor lights up with color and it's very beautiful. Yeah, it, it's really great. And the the effect that is put into place where the color sort of spreads out from Lady Winterborn as you've taken the laudanum, her medication of choice, is uh, really awesome. It just you know, bathes the whole screen uh, in a wave of color and makes the scene completely different than what it was before. But uh, it also showcases the illusions that the the main character is uh, sort of putting into place for their own psyche. It's it's very it's almost it's sort of freaky to be honest. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, that was, that was I think the most interesting chapter. Yeah, it it was for me too. And you know, we'll I think we'll give our thoughts on on the chapters at length, but. Um, it's worth mentioning how this game is structured and, and what you're actually doing from scene to scene to, to get through it. And as I mentioned up top, it is a point-and-click adventure game, but the interesting thing and sort of where the actual gameplay comes in is how to figure out what to do next in this game. And generally speaking, for me, that was listening for context clues in the writing from the characters in her monologues. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or, uh, yeah, you know, there's some of the typical adventure game, examine the room, pick up everything that isn't nailed down and try to use things around. But there wasn't a complicated inventory system. This game didn't have the infamous um, adventure game logic where the uh, game developers try to use humor to make the solutions to the puzzles. This was more about observation and seeing where things would fit in. Yeah, the the uh, example of this that I liked quite a bit was um, in Lady Winterborn's chapter, since we're just going to keep bringing it up, chapter uh. two, where you were asked to uh, play the music in a certain order. You know, you would you found a gramophone and you would play all the different tracks on it. And she said at the end of playing three tracks, of which there were three tracks in the selection, that no, that order is not right. And you're like, okay, order. Where do I find an order? And you needed to... Um, read the uh, different items in the room and you found some pictures and they would give you dates attached to trips to certain locales and those locales matched up to the tracks and the gramophone and if you put them in chronological order you solve the puzzle Mm -hmm. Um, it was a very cool way of asking the player to pay attention but also here's some cool content and art in the form of classical music uh, Mm -hmm. while you are solving Mm -hmm. this puzzle Oh, this game definitely had very good musical tastes, in my opinion. Like, they mm. used um, a lot of kind of uh, solo piano or uh, classical pieces, uh, old pieces, rather than, you know, kind of um, thinking about your John Williams symphonic scores that g- would go to something like Jurassic Park or probably Modern Warfare these days probably has its own orchestra. Um, but it's the kind of, kind of music you don't typically hear in video games. 
yes, I've, I've often considered going to see the Modern Warfare Orchestra when they come through uh, Columbus, but uh, I've not yet done so. <laughs> I bet there is one out there. <laughs> yeah, no, but but to your point, the the classical music in this game is is top notch, and the, it's choices that you wouldn't normally see too. Mm-hmm. I uh, I'm not as familiar with this as you, Josh, but I really enjoyed, you know, everything from um, the period piece music that wasn't classical, like the radio tunes in the hotel in the first scene, to the the gramophone items in the second chapter, which included a couple of classical pieces, but also Mel Hallett and his orchestra, a big band piece uh, <laughs> from the 1920s as well, which is just, you know, real jaunty and fun. Yeah, a little bit different than the... Uh, before that, you hear uh, Nacien Number 1 by Eric Satie uh, during the... Uh, I might be mispronouncing either of those right now, but uh, <laughs> you hear that during the melancholic No Drugs Time uh, of Lady Winterbourne, and it's just such a slow wandering melancholic piece it fits the mood very perfectly oh it's it's amazing and i i wrote this specifically because i loved how much the music reflected the mood in the room for that chapter two the slow fading of lady winterborn and the sun-drenched laudanum induced music is so whimsical uh Gerlou's serenade for strings is uh, used there to great effect just a sort of amp up the whimsy but also still it has a tinge of regret in it you know it's the perfect song for the moment this is clearly a game that was stage and sound designed by someone who knew what they were looking for and found it But all of the um, amazing music in this game wouldn't have continued to, you know, keep you playing it if there wasn't an excellent story and really intentional pacing helping pull you through. And, you know, this game to me never sat still. It never lingered too long on a specific scene or thing. It just kept introducing new ideas and new developments to any given story. The writing was really great. Yeah, definitely good job with the pacing here. And I'm thinking particularly to the Doctor's story, the third chapter, where I'm thinking, like, there were a lot of new scenes in that one, perhaps compared to Lady Winterborn's before, where you're exploring new rooms of the same mansion, um, and the Doctor is traveling a little more further afield in terms of Hmm. uh, fantasy location kind of things. Um, But definitely you get new scenes with a puzzle here or there, a new very memorable encounters in some areas. uh, And it just really keeps it moving. Yeah, I agree. The stories also tend to increase in complexity and surreality as you go. Mm -hmm. Um, They go from an extremely mundane encounter in a hotel room and a pretty run-of-the-mill crime to stretching reality in the second act to a wholesale fantasy in the third. It's really interesting how they just sort of amp you up with that, you know, fantastic element. And that slow introduction of the supernatural, that slow introduction of the hyper-real or just Mm -hmm. plain unreal is something that I really enjoyed. While we're on the topic of pacing, though, uh, one thing I would be remiss to 
uh, failed to mention here is that you walk too damn slow in this game. The single complaint <laughs> I have about it. So the pacing is good in the writing, but the pacing of the character is poor. <laughs> <laughs> they could pace a little more, if you know what I mean. Yeah, let's get that marching order going. <laughs> this is the this is only a real problem in the second chapter, where you might have to go back upstairs and downstairs and upstairs again uh, a couple of times, backtracking, like finding that order of the songs, like you mentioned, Brian. Um, I think just you know making the characters walk a little less slowly would be good. Yeah, it, it happens in the third um, in the library as well, which despite being one of my favorite scenes of the entire game is also stretched a bit too long by the backtracking and circling around of, of the various parts of that library. We'll talk about why that scene is so effective, but also it's worth noting that the the pace, the pacing in terms of speed <laughs> of the character's <laughs> movement is a, is a bit rough. Um, so yeah, with that, why don't we uh, move into talking a bit about some of our favorite moments from the game. And um, to me, this starts with the framing story. Uh, they introduce it with a title card saying Central Asia 1929 on a train. And uh, you're immediately confused, or at least I was, because we're meeting, you know, maybe three, four characters in a row, and none of them know why they're there or who they are, really, because they're all in masks. And it's it's mysterious. It's confusing. I was uh, immediately like sort of taken aback and like, all right, I just need to roll with this. The game starts you off not knowing anything alongside the characters too. So they want to try to figure things out and you want to as well. And you kind of hop along for the ride uh, from this train scene, which they return to after each of these chapters, uh, it launches the individual's stories, the individual chapters. Mm -hmm. The first of those being The Silent Room, uh, which features Carlo, uh, your first protagonist, who is a gay man from Turin, and he's meeting with his secret lover in a hotel in Rome. So uh, his lover Patrick eventually shows up, and it turns out that he's there to break up with him. And there's some, like, sort of allusion to gay conversion therapy, and, you know, there's a quarrel, and it ends up with Patrick splitting his head open on a table, and he is dead. And mm -hmm. it, it was like such a startling turn for me. You know, this is it started off as such a happy scene in a beautiful place and ended in such sudden tragedy. Now, I got a question for you. I remember one of the early choices in the game was maybe you're reading um, a letter or thinking on the pocket watch uh, Patrick gifted you, Carlo. Um, but there's two choices you can take. One of them is something like, uh, it's best to get this over with quickly, where you're kind of thinking, oh, this is going to lead to a breakup. And the other one, I think I didn't get that same feeling from. I chose the breakup one because I'm like, oh, this could be an interesting story here. Uh, uh, which one did you choose? I chose the denial. It was something like, he can't wait to see me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so like, I went through that whole thing like, okay, this is how the meeting's going to go. Whereas... Uh -oh. You were proud, like, I, I, that quarrel happened. I was kind of expecting some drama like that. It probably caught you a little more off guard there. It certainly did. Um, and maybe that's just me being an optimist, but, or just wanting to see this work out between, you know, Patrick and Carlo. 
but uh, it was a bit more sudden for me, it sounds like. It's interesting that they give you the option of seeing that self-interpretation. Um, it sounds like the scene actually went a lot different, and I did not realize that this game had that level of um, range and dynamism in the way these scenes played out, so this might warrant a second playthrough for me. Oh, maybe, maybe. I don't I guess I could see it going either way, but again, I didn't see the other side of the playthrough. Mm-hmm. Um, one really nice touch in this chapter that I want to make sure I mention is that once the um, death of Patrick happens, the painting over the bed, which was, you know, formerly uh, depicting something joyous, I can't remember what, uh, becomes a picture of a murder. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, so the painting above the bed, like, changes after the... You know, all the lighting in the room changes as well. And it's it's amazing that I can even say that in a pixel art game, the lighting in the room changed. But, um, you know, the artistic quality here is way over the top. So just play it. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> Good job, Thomas. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I have to say, what do you think this whole thing was about? Um, you know, the scene ends with uh, Carlos hanging himself. He has committed suicide because he knows that, you know, People know that Patrick is there. They're going to realize that he murdered him, even if it was unintentional, and he'll be locked up forever. So he commits suicide. But Mm -hmm. the game doesn't show that. The game shows him accepting an invitation, and then the scene ends. The invitation is for the train ride that he's on, although we learn about this later on. Right. So to me, this scene was about... I don't know, wrath about the tragedy of self-denial. You know, this uh, Patrick clearly denying the the person that he is in order to uphold societal norms and, you know, willing willingly subjecting himself, it seems, to, like, conversion therapy over, you know, living his truth. And, you know, clearly he's a product of his times, but it, it just struck me as real tragedy. You know, I think these scenes did go different for me because I think with that early choice I made, um, Carlo is looking to just break up with Patrick. I don't think conversion therapy was mentioned, but wait, Car- Carlo was looking to break up with Patrick for you. Yeah. Yeah. I chose the thing like, um, oh, I, I need to hear how this scene played out for you. Cause for me, it was Patrick who broke up with Carlo. No, no, no. And, uh, you know, they, they got mad at each other still and they still had to fight all that happened afterwards. But that early choice I made where it's like, um, you know, better get this over with quickly. Um, then, you know, he, we, Carl, uh, sorry, Patrick came in and I had Car- Carlo started breaking up with him and Patrick's like, you know, starts raging about that. And then the accident happens. Oh my gosh. It was a complete opposite for me. Um, wow. That's really interesting that the, it basically just, that allows the character to be on two different sides of the coin. I love it hmm. when, you know, this, this happened when we talked about Kentucky Route Zero as well, but it's making one subtle change and it sort of completely changes the scene. That's awesome. I didn't know that this game even did that. That's really cool. Oh, very, yeah, it's a, nice hearing that, that, you know, that's a possibility and hearing what else happens on the other path. What uh, what this tells me is even with this, the first, relatively simple of all of the three scenes, there is more than one playthrough could possibly give you. So, um hmm. Play this game <laughs> at least once. Maybe twice. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
Uh, with that, let's talk about um, the second act, and from my perspective, the tour de force of this game, The Slow Vanishing of Lady Winterbourne, um, which features Lady Winterbourne, uh, a French heiress married to an English noble and recently widowed, although that is uh, revealed in context, and she's slowly succumbing to an addiction to laudanum. Also, how recently the widowing happened was up for debate, too, as you learn. Mm-hmm. Fair point. So it opens with uh, Lady Winterborn in her rainy room, and she, uh, you know, the first thing that I really, you know, widened my eyes at was when she took her laudanum, and the world around her brightened. Um, you know, all the colors flowed in, and I was like, oh, yikes, this is uh, addiction. Uh, you know, the little, like, uh, alarm bells and klaxons in my head were going off, and uh, the force of self-delusion abounds in this particular scene. Yeah, kind of just uh, denial as a coping mechanism for grief. Uh, denial and kind of evasion, hiding in uh, substances to instead of dealing with what you got. I think one of the interesting things about this, though, you know, we talked about when Lady Winterborne takes the laudanum, uh, the world goes from dark and drab and gray and dusty to bright colors. The music changes from this melancholic wandering to this... Um, this very interesting, much more upbeat strings uh, coming at you. And in that way, it's kind of aligning the player with uh, Lady Winterborn. Like, the laudanum doesn't last forever. It eventually wears off. And as a player, you're kind of like, I want to find some more of that and get back to the happy world. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. It, it really does, especially because, it, as you said, it incentivizes you by making the effects of the laudanum so beautiful <laughs> you know <laughs> um you want to see it more um but i don't know if you noticed this but as you went on through this chapter a transparency effect was put on lady winterborne that slowly increased did you notice this yeah yeah i noticed that that was one of that was a cool moment when you realize what's going on and that she is slowly vanishing from the world i think as, as a metaphor for her uh substance use yeah, it, it is uh, worth mentioning that on top of the substance abuse, she's also continuing to get communications from the former members of her social circle. You know, she has suitors coming. You know, they want, uh, she's an heiress, so they want that wealth. And they're, you know, they keep trying to court her. And she's in complete denial that her husband is even gone. So she's dismissing them all out of hand. Um, it's really sad. And, um, you know, she's obviously in a terrible place. You know, they, they keep this moving forward in this chapter by slowly revealing details about her life before the tragedy. And that's where the puzzles of this chapter come in. Not only that, but also revealing details about the tragedy itself. But um, you're given access to these new details by completing a few puzzles. Uh, we mentioned the gramophone puzzle up top, ordering the music by Trippier, but there's also one about setting a clock based on uh, some knowledge you find in a, a nearby book. And then a final one, uh, retracing steps to eventually lead yourself to the conservatory where the freakiest jump scare in a game <laughs> recently occurs. <laughs> yeah, this was a huge moment. Um, so what you're doing is you enter this conservatory and you have to recreate a series of steps. Um, you have to search bushes in a particular order or go to particular places in a particular order. And Lady Winterborn is uh, pantomiming actions 
uh, but you can't really see what she's doing beyond like just the person herself what she's doing so uh she's like acting on let's say objects right now uh but you don't see the objects you just see where late lady winterborne is and what she's doing um and then after you successfully solve that uh you go back to the present day and you go to the pond uh and you fish out an object from the pond and you realize it's a cat and you piece together those the pantomime that you saw before was Lady Winterborne um, being so distressed at the sudden death of her husband, who was killed uh, when he was driving home because their family cat, their beloved cat, ran out in front of the car and caused him to crash into a tree. But you realize she's tracking down the cat and drowning it in a well in the middle of the conservatory. And it's just like this moment of horror, this gut punch that hits you when you're like, man, what's happened? It it scared the shit out of me um, because it, it happens in a moment and all of the, you know, sun-drenched color in the conservatory immediately flashes out of existence and you're left in this, you know, rotten husk of a conservatory instead with this dead cat in your hands. And then it quickly goes back. You know, it's only a few seconds, but it's like the jump scare of the century. And it, yeah, it, it really, you know, punches home that, you know, this is a deep tragedy, obviously what the, the situation Josh just laid out is like a worst case scenario as, um, a person who is married and has a pet could possibly imagine. (laughs) And, um, and you know, at, at the end of it, it's revealed that Lady Winterborne still is maintaining this illusion that her husband is there, but he's not. And at the very end, you go into his office and it's seen that it's just a portrait of him that is still there. Mm -hmm. And she takes her last dose of medicine and receives her invitation and her mask uh, to join the rest of the group on the train. Opening into the third scene, uh, the nameless ritual, you are shown Dr. Jordan Samuels, who is a black surgeon in New York, and he is in the midst of carrying out an occult ritual when um, the racial discrimination that he is subject to by his colleagues becomes a bit too much to bear, and so he is you know, turning to the dark arts to either get revenge or attain power or knowledge that will give him prestige. You know, for one reason or another, and again, you are in control of why he is doing this. Um, Curious, which reason did you choose? Uh, I went with knowledge myself, even though it was uh, the scene that was playing before was um, definitely you felt like the racial injustice. Yeah, yeah. the The impetus of of the injustice and racism he's subject to drove me to choose that it was revenge. I'm wondering if they changed things around for that too. I could. V- very well see that happening we'll find out um Uh, but yeah so this this kind of opens with a you know the table setting of of that you know the reasoning behind why he's doing this and you know seeding the world with a few characters his neighbors who are sick and poor and he is helping them out of the goodness of his heart but then also he is 
in this just squalor in his little apartment trying to perform this dark ritual. And that is your first puzzle, you know, performing the ritual. And it's a great little puzzle. You know, you are given a few different books to reference as you put together the correct steps. Um, this is the first game I've taken like handwritten notes on in a while, sort of lining hmm. up the planet to flower to mineral that needed to be aligned to make the ritual work. To anatomical body part. Yeah, yeah, to anatomical body part as well. Yeah, there's sort of a, a matrix of four different aspects you have to make sure you are including the right part of in order to get the ritual correctly. And, um, you know, it's interesting. It, it's, uh, it's a cool puzzle. There's a moment of, I don't know if you want to call it squeamishness or body horror, maybe. Um, but as the last part of the ritual, the doctor has to inflict injury on himself. And um, one of the, the last area he has to inflict it on is for lining up with Saturn. Um, he has to inflict it on his gonads, which, oof, 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 oof. I feel for you. <laughs> yeah, you, you never want to see that. Um but hey, the ritual calls for what the ritual calls for. And um, uh, as a result of that, he is able to sort of enter the mirror in his room into, you know, he thought he was just summoning a demon, but instead he created a portal and it is now his prerogative to step through it. Mm -hmm. He steps through the portal and it is in this horror version, this mirror version of his apartment where there's this entity that's kind of, living in the wall or stuck to the wall or somehow entombed in the wall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's in the upside down from uh, Stranger Things, basically. And it's gross. It's a real nasty place. Um, his his apartment is, he encounters, as you said, that the wall liver, he encounters, he's looking for an entity called the Guardian, as I understand it, who is going to give him the power or revenge or whatever he is searching for. Mm -hmm. And... um he leaves the apartment and eventually heads down some stairs where the upstairs used to be uh, into the flooded library. And I will say right here, this is my favorite library in all of video games. <laughs> it's really striking. Uh, it's a great scene. It has really good sound design with um, all of the effects that sort of fade in throughout it and what is going on as you make your way through it. But also... Um, it's really poignant from a storytelling perspective as it gives you a ton of background on the character. Uh, and not only does it give you the background on the character, the character is losing that background as you gain it. Uh, throughout these books, these stacks, you find mementos, recordings from the doctor's own life, and you have to offer them up to this entity, to the, uh, this kind of clerk who's sitting in the middle of the library in order to proceed. And as... As Dr. Jordan Samuels offers up these mementos, he forgets them himself and loses those memories. So there's also a kind of bit of psychological horror to it as well. Yeah, he is basically slowly erasing his entire life in order to um, achieve the goal that he set out for himself upon entering this realm. And it's it's terrible. Um, you know, you learn about his, uh, you know, the subject, or his subjection to racism in his youth, about his... Um, you know, the tragedy with his romantic life, about his time as a uh, military person, um, and the terrible things he was subject to, or that he experienced as a part of that. And it culminates with a cathedral infirmary scene, where you encounter three different patients that you are forced to euthanize in rapid succession. 
kind of a twisted puzzle sequence if you think about what your standard adventure game is asking you to do. Um, but yeah, this is a interesting way they went about that. Yeah, and if it sounds like we're talking about this really terrible thing that I've just described in a very matter-of-fact way, um, you know, it's because I'm reading it off of my notes. It's really affecting and, and awful in in the moment. And this is this is a horror game. You know, it's uh, mm-hmm. you're experiencing a horrible thing as as you're going through this. So I don't want anyone to take this lightly, but um, it's rough. <laughs> um, and and again, you know, if you're if you're this far into the the recording, I hope you've played this already, and then you can appreciate <laughs> the words and looking at this from a critical perspective. But um, it absolutely delivers on sort of. Um, revisiting the most terrible portions of uh dr samuel's life and um then he is back in front of his peers in um his surgeon peers and he is asked to give up his soul so as he decides to make that ultimate decision to to give up his soul he emerges from the the mirror back in his old apartment to see himself and then proceeds to murder himself so this is once again a story of a, of a person taking their own life and then entering the mirror upon receiving his invitation. Uh, this is the only person in the story, to my knowledge, that had some entity who was still conscious and alive enter the, uh, the mirror, or rather enter the afterlife. So this is an interesting sort of different way of closing out the story. Obviously the most fantastical and occult of all of them, but still, you know, coming to the same point in the train not knowing why they are there. Now, I don't quite remember the end of the story. I remember he shows up as the Guardian after he's, you know, lost all of his memories. He's given up his soul. He's given up everything to gain knowledge or revenge or what have you. Uh, Does he, as the empty husk Guardian, kill his other self coming back to his room, or does his other self kill him? I think the empty husk killed the former him. And then, and then he. I think if you like, click on the character um, after the murder has taken place. He says, "Is this all I am?" or something like that, or "Is this all I was?" And you know, then the scene ends as he steps through the mirror. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think that's that sounds right. Yeah, it, it's a bit confusing because they are identical character models, but um, and you know, having not played this in a, a week or so, but um, if I'm getting that wrong, um, you know, a quick, you know replay of that scene would would correct me but um either way it is um an immolation of the self is kind of what's happening in 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 jordan samuel's story and it's uh dark it's very dark Mm -hmm. Then we get on to our last chapter, If on a Winter's Night. Um, We find out that the lady that has been talking to all these previous three characters, uh, she's kind of like an employee for the train, for the Afterlife Incorporated, or whatever it is. Um, And she, uh, these three suicides were supposed to go down to the lower levels, but she liked their stories enough that she um, is giving them this invitation to a better place. That's right. Uh, that character by the name of Layla uh, and is portrayed as an older woman who's, you know, very curious about her passengers. Um, and I think it's interesting. I, I looked up like, hey, does this 
allude to anything in, you know, uh, religious history. And it turns out that um, Layla or Lila is the only angel recorded uh, with a feminine name and distinctly feminine characteristics in the typical Judeo-Christian mythology. Ah, okay. So at the end of this, it's uh, sort of a neat reveal. Uh, She, as you said, has sort of smuggled some of these characters aboard when they were supposed to be at the back, because um, I guess this is going by Dante's Inferno logic. If you're killed by your own hand, you're supposed to be in the seventh circle, right? Further below. But Mm -hmm. these folks are in a uh, less hot (laughs) part of the train, I guess, going to a less low level. And um, what I really like is that at the very end, they pan out. And the train you're on is not actually going through, you know, East Asia or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not cold anymore. It is hot. There's flames outside and, uh, you know, crucified bodies and things of that nature, uh, showcasing that they are, in fact, in hell. There was a nice little, I don't know, comic horror moment at the end with uh, Layla's like, you know, if they're going where they're going, they'll have a chance to um, redeem themselves. In 800,000 years. <laughs> yeah. Only 800,000 yeah. years. He's like, they, they may have a chance to redeem themselves, or or they might not. It might never happen. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, it, the interesting thing is that they, they do return to this framing story, and they do kind of leave it open for expansion. You know, I think the, the conclusion of this game was super strong from my perspective, but um, they do also, you know, end on a, an ambiguous note, which I liked. Yeah, great, great game overall. Definitely two thumbs up from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I definitely agree. And I can't recommend that folks check this out enough, especially given the, the low, low bar to entry. Any system can run this. Any person can afford it, given it's free. Um, so please do yourself a favor. Head to itch.io. Check out this game. We can throw a link to the game up on our webpage as well if... It's easier for you to find this than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I'll make sure to include in the show notes and our our uh, website entry. Uh, so with that, uh, why don't we try and describe uh, very briefly our feelings about this game with a three-word review. My three-word review for this game is Illusion, Confusion, Conclusion. When I first saw the title of this game, I immediately thought, that has to be referencing something. So a quick Google revealed that it was a book that honestly just sounded very confusing, as I said before. Um, But I put my confusion aside and steeped myself in the game's gorgeous pixel art, excellent writing, and tales of people grappling with traumatic memories, each more horrific than the next. And by the conclusion uh, of each story, I was always shocked. There was always a reveal, and it always made me uh, sort of completely rethink the way things had had gone up until that point. The prestige to each of these stories was excellent. The overall framing in the game as a whole, while open-ended, also still delivers a perfect ending in its own right. For me, this writing reached a whole new level, enticing me with illusion, drawing me deeper with confusion, and leaving me satisfied with each conclusion, but still thirsty for more. All right. So I had a couple of different three-word reviews for this. My original three-word review, uh, which I thought about for a while, it was 
uh, Beautiful Fading Horror. Uh, this is a horror game par excellence. You get some real gut punches here. You get some, like that kind of shocking moment where you're forced to re-examine everything before that. And it's, you know, uh, you've, if you've listened to our podcast before, you, you'll probably know I'm not a huge fan of Resident Evil, uh, the Resident <laughs> Evil games. Like, the way they do hair, uh, horror, it's more like jump scares and getting the adrenaline flowing. And this this game's more like the horrifying stuff of life and the things people can do. And it, it's got beautiful, uh, gorgeous pixel art, and you can see people's lives as they fade out in these different stories. So that was what I was thinking about for my three-word review, but what I have to go with in the end is go with my gut and go with best damn library. Because, my goodness, I just loved that whole level. I didn't mind the backtracking there at all, because I was just taking in all the details. All the little sounds that happened, the little background music that would come on when you went down one branch or another. Gorgeous A++++ would get a library card there again. Library of the (laughs) Damned. Amen. Um, Yeah, truly a fantastic game. Um, Do yourself a favor and check this one out. And uh, for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, then share it with folks you might think will enjoy it as well. Feel free to drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod if you have thoughts, responses, or anything else. And if you're so inclined, leave a review on the podcast infrastructure of your choice. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on training. But uh <laughs> <laughs>50 minutes into the podcast we really can't talk about anything for an hour (laughs) and this Uh, is half the length of the game now (laughs) yeah seriously so um so if you've listened to this podcast you could have played half of this game which would have been a better use of your time honestly (laughs) oh well